I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Anna. And I'm Caroline. And welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. This is our May book club episode, and we're going to be discussing The Illumination of Ursula Flight by Anna Marie Crowhurst and talking to the author herself. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another special book club episode of Seriously. Before we even go on with the show, I'm going to apologise if it sounds like I'm down a well. It's because I'm down a well. (laughs) We've moved offices and I am not in a podcasting room right now. This is definitely the worst possible room for this recording, but it's what we've got. So it's what we're dealing with today. Yes, we thought we'd rather get you an episode than not. So please, yeah, we'll do our best with the bad sound quality. Bear with us. Mm -hmm. So this week on the Seriously Book Club, we're talking about The Illuminations of Ursula Flight by Anna Marie Crowhurst, um, which is a book that you chose, Caroline. Yeah, so this is one where I got sent the proof copy of it quite a few months ago. When you sort of vaguely work with books a bit, review them and talk about them, publicists are very good at smelling out what kind of things you like. So Mm. I got sent this proof with a a special note that had been sort of hand sealed with a wax stamp and everything (laughs) saying, you know, we thought you might like this, give it a read. Uh, Yeah, so it's a historical novel. It's set in the 17th century and it follows the titular Ursula Flight, a young woman who's born on the night of a a great comet. She literally pops out of her mum as the comet pops into the sky. And then it follows her life from her birth up until her early 20s. And it's very much embedded in the language and style and culture of the restoration literary world. So Anna, what did you make of it? I think you might know a little bit more about the historical context than I do. To me, it felt so well imagined and so vivid, which is kind of perfect for a historical novel because you don't really need to know loads about the period to want to feel like your transport is there and that's definitely the effect that I had I really thought you know the use of language really worked for me because although I'm sure it is very anachronistic in parts it's neither you know you don't feel like it's drawing attention too much to how someone would speak in that time but also all the slang the way sentences are constructed and stuff are are, are done with with that eye and that ear for what someone who was born in 1664 or whatever might actually sound like. 
Yeah, I thought that was really great. And it's quite a high stakes thing for an author to do as well, I think, because if you get it wrong, it can be so distracting to the reader that they just can't get hold of the story at all. If it feels like Mm. someone's putting on a kind of cod Shakespearean voice and going, prithee, sir, all the time, then you just won't (laughs) be able to empathise with the characters. Exactly. But if it's in totally modern English, you get a similar effect where it it feels divorced from the the quality of the period that it's trying to get across. Yeah. And what most novelists end up with, I think, is something a bit like what Hilary Mantel does in Wolf Hall, where the dialogue has a kind of flavour of Mm. the time, more often in the syntax than in the actual words. Like she doesn't do sort of chronologically accurate spelling or anything like that but she just inverts verbs and stuff to give you the rhythm and then in the interior monologue of her main character it's much plainer language Mm, yeah yeah whereas in this that's not really what she does so much I feel like the internal monologue does have quite historical phrasing and slang and stuff because it's not super dialogue heavy and then the other brilliant technique she uses is a lot of sections of this play are broken up. Uh, sorry, that's very telling, the slip <laughs> that I just made there. But lots of sections of this novel are, are divided into like mini play scripts and little diary entries and letters. Um, so she is a playwright and when she writes plays, you, you're reading the, the metafiction, but then also you get these little asides where like, you know, it might say, the lady and then you realize that it's actually the actor who's playing the lady who's speaking as themselves so it kind of breaks down the 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 wall between the metafiction and the actual novel i don't know there's something really nice about that sort of breaking the fourth wall that's happening inside the the mini narrative yeah it really allows you to kind of she's she's experimented so much with the form and that i think really allows for a greater sense of the period as well yeah i really like that as well i found it often very funny and as you say it keeps your curiosity running high all the way through. I know a couple of reviewers have felt the opposite. The Guardian review said that they felt that the the interruptions to the main narrative by these little play dialogues and other because there are a few times where she uses sort of lists and things like that as well Mm. and almost like I really like quite early on when she and her best friend are having what I feel every best friends do where they have their private club and my little brother isn't allowed Mm. they it includes like the rules of our club yeah exactly I love things like that though I always have yeah exactly it's I think it's really great and I think it especially when you are writing about a writer it Mm. I think it adds greatly to the sense of the character to give you what she writes Mm, absolutely and it's a cheat isn't it often when you read books about writers who are poets or something and you never get to see any of their poetry sometimes it works but sometimes you feel a bit like well I don't really have a sense of what this person is like as a writer at all and that's meant to be the driving force of this narrative and yeah you get a real sense of her kind of sense of humor the bawdiness of the stuff she's writing and I really like that Mm. Yeah, so you'll hear when we play the interview with Anna-Marie shortly that she was very, very heavily influenced just by her own love of the literature of this period Mm. and particularly the theatre and also by her researches when she realised that this was actually a moment of relative freedom for women when it came to being professional 
writers and creators and storytellers in Mm. that with the restoration of the monarch after the Commonwealth and the Civil War came, you know, women were allowed to actually work on the London stage legally for the first time. Uh, Afra Ben, the first known woman playwright in Britain, was working around this time as well. And there was just this huge flowering of drama and comedy and people wanting to Mm. go to the theatre and, you know, the court all being about theatre and performance and all this kind of stuff. And so absolutely, she wanted to put a story of a young woman in amongst all of that. Um, The idea being that Afra Ben is just the one that we know about, but Mm, there must have been others. Totally. And I love that. And also, I feel like that there are some kind of maybe sexist people who would be picky and be like, this would never happen. You know, the the other playwrights, male playwrights respond quite positively to her work. And um, but I'm kind of like, don't care, even if that could be true, because I like the idea that we were kind of robbed of these stories at the time. So why shouldn't we have the imagination to go back and like see what that would be like now? I think that's a great thing to do. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me really strongly of a a novel I read last year called Margaret the First by Danielle Dutton, I think, which is a slim little thing all about Margaret Cavendish, who was a sort of aristocrat around this time but he was one of the first women to sort of be a science writer she Mm. wrote a lot about natural philosophy and so on and again that there's not that much that's known about her actual life I don't think although some of her writing survives and the novel just imagines what her life would have been like um Mm. imagines her relationship with her husband and everything and yeah I found that really moving actually I think there is something powerful in sort of giving stories back to those who because of patriarchal ideas about what's worth preserving don't necessarily survive like Samuel Pepys's diary or whatever. Mm, Absolutely I also thought this reminded me of slightly later literature as well it really it made me think of like Clarissa and Pamela those Mm. Samuel Richardson novels which are maybe 50 to 100 years later mid mid 18th century but in their kind of mixing of like epistolary form and um novel form and also just in their like plots <laughs> mm. um you know this kind of like innocent girl whisked away too soon uh you know having has to realize the ways of the world for herself kind of thing one thing I will say is that I feel like the blurb of this book kind of sells it on everything you were saying Caroline about the excitement of that restoration mm. period and we actually don't get a lot of that till later in the novel I think you're maybe 300 pages into a 400 page novel before you before you become properly immersed in that scene and I think if anything I'd like to have seen more of it earlier on but that just the inherent way the plot functions prevents that and I do like the plot so it's not so much a criticism as an observation but yeah it doesn't doesn't come in till slightly later in the novel. Yeah I think that's that's definitely true and I think that's just a function of the fact that she's chosen to start the story at Ursula's birth and so Mm -hmm. it's not until she's in her late teens that she's able to kind of mix in that theatrical world and get involved and it is more satisfying when it comes because definitely yeah you're feeling that it's inevitable at some point that she will make her way into that part of the of the world so when it happens you do feel more delighted for her Mm. yeah and as you say I I enjoyed the sort of buildings roman 
type mm, style and, and it's quite sexy in parts as it well, is isn't it? yeah I the romances are really well done really beautifully done i i don't always like the word romp because i think it gets <laughs> yeah. used it is a terrible too much word, actually, and it is a terrible word but maybe this is a novel that where it could be applied positively in mm. that it is quite rompy and that's good mm. uh yeah it also something it um really strongly reminded me of was tristram shandy Mm, if yeah. anyone listening is familiar with that which um I was involved in writing a, a stage adaptation of when I was a student so I absolutely love that book and read it from mm. end to end many many times and have grappled with the challenges of trying to stage a book in which it starts when someone is born and then the principal plot turning motive is when somebody uh a sash window you know gets stuck on his genitalia uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um but i did feel that this has a similar sensibility in that it's quite absurd it starts with the char- almost the character narrating their own birth in a mm-hmm. slightly postmodern way and mm-hmm. then follows their own life through from there um yeah and it's just a lot of fun and at the moment i am definitely in the market for novels that are a lot of fun absolutely well, thanks for choosing it, Caroline. A great choice. You're welcome. I hope listeners liked it as well. Do let us know what you thought if you're going to read it on our social medias as well as our email. They're all seriouslypod at gmail.com or on Twitter or Facebook. And mm-hmm. yeah, so let's roll the interview with Anna Marie and hear about how the book came to be. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss so now i'm joined by anna marie crowhurst the author of the illumination of ursula flight who is going to tell us a bit about how she came to write this amazing book so um Anna Marie, could you start at the beginning with us? How did you get interested in this period? Hello. I've always been a massive history buff and for a while I was really obsessed with the 16th century. Uh, I used to read a lot of books about Tudors and things like that when I was a teenager. 
And uh, just my reading really took me to the 17th century. And I discovered that the late 17th century, the Restoration era, when Charles II was restored to the throne in 1660, was just kind of an amazing time um, in loads of ways. Uh, there were loads of creative things going on. There were a lot of playwrights uh, coming to the fore and the Royal Society was established. So there were great advances in science and astrology and all those kind of things. And I thought, oh, this is a, a really good time. There's loads of stuff going on and there might be something in there to write about. And I also really like the fact that it was a, an amazing time for women. Um, they kind of had a, well, a relatively, they had a, quite a degree of freedom compared to other eras. So you get people like Nell Gwynn and Elizabeth Barry and Charles II's mistresses being able to have a little bit of power, despite the fact that the laws of the land meant that women couldn't own any property. And in terms of writers and things that I'm interested in, like the theatre, in 1660, um, Charles II decreed that women could act on the English stage for the first time. So in ah. theatre history, it was an enormous move forward. And uh, women suddenly could do things like acting and being playwrights. Um, so that's why I found the era so amazing. It's just a, kind, a really, really sexy era that I also think is quite overlooked in, in novels. There aren't that many books about the Restoration era. Yes, I feel like there are, for the reasons you've just said, there are lots of plays, um, some of which still get performed regularly in the listeners might have come across but yeah I've, I don't think I've ever read a, another novel set at this time. I really loved the novel Amber by Kathleen Windsor which was published in the 1940s and I think I discovered that in my early 20s and that's a, a very rompy very very long fun novel about a, a woman coming to London in the restoration era um, it, it's kind of a bit more of a Mole Flanders narrative so that's but that's the only one I can really think of other than Mole Flanders and things of the time so I think it's high time this era was was written about more because it's actually great it's really super sexy in many ways. So once you'd decided or you know really fallen in love with the the time what was then the thinking process about crafting your own story within it? I think I I mean I got really interested in Afra Ben who is is uh, unfortunately really not that well known um but there was a very famous Virginia Woolf quote about her that all women writers shall let flowers fall upon the tomb of Afra mm. Ben and um, she was a playwright working at the time who was hugely famous and as far as we know I think she's the the first female playwright um in in Britain which is amazing and I started to think I wonder, there isn't really much known about her. I read a few books about her and they kind of don't really know anything apart from some odd things like the fact she was a spy at some point. Um, and I kind of started to think, how would you, how would that happen? How would you become a writer as a woman in that era when the expectations were that you would get married, have children, your husband would, would own all your property? How would that happen? What if you were somebody who was really creative and you were kind of trapped how would you become a playwright? So that's what led me to start to think about a story of, of another woman who grows up 
um, has all these yearnings, who's a great reader, who's really creative, who puts on plays. Um, how would she get to be, to come to London and be a playwright? So that's kind of how the story evolved, was just me thinking, well, if Afra Ben existed, there must have been other women like her who existed. So that we've forgotten in history because obviously uh, the men won. So that's mm-hmm. really how the story evolved. And so when you were plotting out the course of Ursula Flight, because it starts right at the very beginning with her birth and gets, as you say, you know, tracks her all the way through her childhood and through her education and all the rest of it. Sort of how far did you feel you needed to go back in her life? Why the decision to start right with her birth? I don't know. That's just the way. It's hard to explain how you did it. I didn't actually start at the beginning. I started somewhere in the middle because I just had this idea of her as a teenage girl sort of with a with an older husband I was kind of thinking of teenage experiences that are kind of universal all those bad boyfriends you have and then once I'd started writing about her as a teenager and in her marriage and being creatively frustrated and kind of managing managing her frustration by writing about it by writing plays and diary entries it kind of just then made sense that I needed to explain how she'd got there so Mm. but yeah I kind of love all those um picaresque novels that that start when when the person is born and the kind of form led me to feel that it should start at the very beginning um but I didn't I didn't actually get to the point where she dies or anything I only actually got to her at age 21 so but I, I kind of felt like it was getting quite enormous at that point so I thought mm. I'd just leave that open-ended. And you mentioned really liking picaresque novels and stuff. And I think something that becomes immediately apparent when you start reading the book is that there are lots of formal tropes that you recognise from that kind of literature that you've used in this book, even down to like the subheadings for each chapter where you say, in which Ursula does blah and blah, or in which I do, it's in the first person, isn't it? What was the process of deciding that you wanted to write sort of in the form of the time as, as well as about the time? I mean, I, I don't know. It just kind of, it, it just evolved that way. I, I found that I was reading so many uh, books of the era to try and get the, I was reading like things like Pete's diaries and, 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 um, you know um other sort of diaries that have been published by people from the 17th century and I was just getting an ear for the language because I wanted to get that right because one of the things that personally annoys me when you're reading I know some people don't mind this but when I'm reading a book that's set in the past it irritates me if I can read anachronisms in the dialogue so mm. just to kind of get an ear for the language of the time made me, I, I guess, kind of pick up some other traits of, of novels of the time and things like Daniel Defoe, but even more recent novels like like Dickens. Um, that's very much a, a standard way of doing things. So I guess I just kind of absorbed all of that by osmosis and it just, it just came out that way. Um, and once I started things like the chapter headings, um, I thought, oh, I quite like that. I'm going to keep doing that. So you mentioned um, just before we came on air that you did an MA in creative writing. I know I'm always very interested and I think lots of our listeners are as well to hear how a writer came to be a writer. So could you give us a little little bit of background on that? Yeah, well, I've actually always been a professional writer in one sense because I've I've been a journalist since I um, graduated from university. And so I felt very much that writing was always what 
I was going to do. And like many, like many people, not just journalists, but I think everyone who who's interested in writing and who loves books will at some point try to write a book, which I'd done several times. I mean, there's some ho- horrifying, um, terrible <laughs> novels in my in my closet that I would hate to see the light of day. So I was always trying to write books and doing freelance journalism on the side. And I was I was uh, doing one particular freelance job, which was, shall we say, very unrewarding <laughs> creatively and in other ways. And I just kind of thought, I, I can't do this anymore. I've got to I've got to do something about my my burning ambition um, to, to, to write a good novel, to write a novel finally. So I actually quit, quit the job I was doing and, um, rang up Bath Spa University and said, I really want to do your MA. And I, I got in and, and a few months later I was, I was on the course. Maybe it's cause I'm a journalist and I, I, kind of thrive on deadlines, but I just felt like I needed a deadline provided by someone else to, mm. yeah, you know, you understand, to make me do the work. Courses like Bath Bar offer teaching by some amazing novelists who who really know what they're doing. And when I started the course, I realised that I had so much more to learn than I'd even realised. I thought being a journalist, well, I'm already a writer. So, you know, how hard is this going to be? But it turns out it's actually really difficult and there's a, there's a lot to learn. So, that kind of gave me a year in which to focus solely on writing a book. I mean, I still kept my job going as a freelance journalist. So I just worked seven days a week, basically, um, <laughs> and commuted to Bath Bar because I live in London for a couple of days. But it just I set myself the deadline then of um, writing the book in a year because I couldn't really afford to take any more time off work, to be honest. And so it was amazing for me. Um, my supervisor was Tessa Hadley, who is an incredible novelist. Um, and there were loads of other amazing teachers on the course, like Nathan Filer and Philip Hensher, who gave so many bits of amazing advice that and, and ways of working that I still use today. So I, I don't think I could have written the book without that structure and without that time devoted solely to writing books. Um, and I wish I could go back because it was amazing. And so you you wrote Ursula Flight as a part of the course almost or alongside? It was part of the course. So on those, I think on most of those degrees, um, you'll, you have to produce a novel or a collection of stories or poems um, as your dissertation. And the right. whole way, yeah, so the whole way through the course, you're kind of writing little sections of your book in order to produce. I think it was um, you had to give 40,000 words of a novel if you're doing novels as your dissertation. And so I didn't have to write the entire thing while I was doing the course. But I just uh, I decided that that's what I had to do in order to to eat. So, mm. yeah, so it, it really was an amazing opportunity and so then I assume you found a publisher and um and so on and another thing I really wanted to ask you about is the actual presentation of the book itself because whilst it's got a lovely cover and everything inside there are lots of typographic things about it that sort of speak of the period that it's set in and how did that come about when I was writing the manuscript I kind of felt an urge to make it look 
like I felt I wanted it to look. So when I was writing the little bits that looked like plays, because I'd been doing a lot of research, I saw these amazing playbills um, that had all these incredible sort of hand-printed 17th century typefaces. And I, I, when I was even, even when I was handing in my coursework and handing in my dissertation as part of the, the master's degree, I felt it would help the reader if they could see a little bit how it how it should look and so mm. even when I was sending it out to agents my manuscript which was in Microsoft Word um, looked like that so I spent a long time kind of finding the right font and kind of spacing everything out <laughs> by hand um, <laughs> wow <laughs> which is which is kind of insane um, and I'm not sure the copy editor loved that when they got to it because they obviously had to take it all out before it could go and be printed but so when I found my publisher they were quite excited by this and wanted to reproduce it I mean they've obviously made it a million times better than than my original conception so they found um some uh designers who could replicate that and make it look how I'd imagined so so it looks you know exactly how I kind of knew it could look if you see what I mean and you do have all of these sections that are sort of they break out from the conventional narrative of the novel you mentioned you've got sections of plays you've got lists you've got bits of playbills um even there's one bit I really liked where it was kind of like what I said what I was thinking side (laughs) by side on the page is that just sort of as you're writing you kind of thought I I need a different way of expressing this thought or maybe I need the reader to sort of break out of this particular mold you know how did those come about I suppose I started it started with the character so like Ursula is somebody who is a writer and I kind of I suppose that's something that I've done throughout my life even though I was writing for a living being a journalist I've always been doing things like writing imaginary radio plays and poems and like random things here and there so I kind of imagine that if someone in the 17th century wanted to be a writer they'd be doing the same thing but within the form Mm. the forms that they knew at the time so as I was writing this in the first person I felt like it would make sense if the story that the narrator was telling was in all these different forms because it would be all the things that she was doing and it it was actually just from a purely selfish standpoint it's really (laughs) enjoyable to write for me to write things in all these different ways like I'm definitely a frustrated playwright I mean I've never written a play but I I love the theatre so much and and just kind of you know, trying to ape all of those amazing conventions from Restoration Theatre was just loads of fun. And I think sometimes writing dialogue can give a lot of opportunities for comedy because you can have one-liners that's maybe harder to do in prose. I don't know. So Mm. for me, it was selfishly really enjoyable. You mentioned you really like the theatre. Do you have a sort of particular playwright or play from that era that you you really, really love? I mean, I suppose it, it really, Afra Ben is is the one who kind of has inspired the book the most um and I, and I think is is really overlooked um I saw a production of her probably her I think her best play The Rover at Stratford-upon-Avon and I was surprised I mean I'd read I'd read it but plays are never the same when you read them it was the funniest I think the funniest 
you know, play from, you know, pre 20th century that I've ever seen. I, I just, I split my sides basically. Um, you know, I, 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 I suppose it's like part of that thing where people think women aren't funny. I, I wonder if that's always been a bit of an issue, but her, she's got so many clever acerbic things to say about relationships and men and women. Um, and some of them are still still work for today. I mean, many of them still work for today. So I suppose Afra Ben, f- for those reasons, has to be my favourite. I mean, and how amazing to have got that far that you would have published plays despite all those things that would have been against you at the time. So I think she's a bit of a hero, really. Mm. I think also I remember reading somewhere that as well as the sort of first playwright, she's the first woman that we know of who made a living from being a writer that wasn't also an aristocrat or it wasn't a hobby or something she it was her job yeah absolutely I mean yeah that's the other thing to to, to be the, the reason we know about her is because she did it as a as a as a career and was and was really well known at the time and her plays were put on at court and she Charles II knew who she was and you know all the royals and aristocracy were going to see her plays and she was really talked about so yeah it's not just that she wrote plays because I'm sure there were loads of women that did that but she was brilliant at it but just I suppose her contemporaries uh like Etheridge and Congreve and so on are, are more remembered um and I'm not really sure why it's really unfair well I think you've you already answered why. <laughs> because they um, yes. Um, I think the, the last thing I wanted to ask you is um, for readers who've maybe read this book, but who aren't very familiar with the period and who would maybe like to go and read something along the same lines or that inspired you, what would you recommend? I suppose, I mean, it's difficult because in in the 17th century, it, people weren't really writing novels. Um, no, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Afra Ben is actually, I think, considered to have written one of the first proto novels. She wrote something called Orinoco. Um, but it it wasn't really a novel in the way we think of novels today. So um, there there isn't anything ex- exactly the same as this from the era. But I suppose the closest thing would, would have to be Mole Flanders, um, which is a bit later. Mm. Um, and that's obviously the story of a woman's life and how she manages um, rises and falls in her fortune. So I suppose in terms of era, um, that's probably, even though that's not written by a woman, I mean, there weren't really many books published by women. Um, there's Margaret Cavendish, who was amazing, but that's she's more sort of a scientific factual writer. But I suppose, yeah, Daniel Defoe is probably the closest thing you could get if you want something actually from the era. But in terms of historical fiction... Forever Amber that I mentioned earlier by Kathleen Windsor was a huge bestseller um, at the time in the 1940s. I think people thought it was quite scandalous because it's quite sexy and there's lots of um, mm. yeah, there's lots of glamour and naughty things that happen and Nell Gwynn's in there and there's all sorts of boobiness and you know naughtiness. So I would definitely recommend that for a a great sort of beach read. Um, it goes on and on. You're not going to run out of <laughs> anything to read. And it's just really light and fun, which I think in today's political climate, we will need a bit of a a bit of a break and a bit of escapism. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Anna-Marie. And I hope listeners have enjoyed reading the book. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you you've enjoyed on the show we love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com and if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.